Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 2, Episode 2, Flight 1. On March 1, 1962, American Airlines Flight 1 rolled over and crashed into Jamaica Bay. Flight 1 was scheduled to take off at 10 a.m. from New York International Airport, now JFK International, and land at Los Angeles International Airport. The flight took off from runway 31L at 10.07 a.m. The plane banked sharply after takeoff, flipped past 90 degrees, crashed into the bay, and exploded on impact. The accident took the lives of all 87 passengers and 8 crew members on board. This was not the first crash in American history, nor the first for Flight 1. A small passenger airliner operating American Airways Flight 1 had crashed decades earlier, on January 14, 1936. Another plane flying under the Flight 1 designation crashed outside of Lawrence Station, Ontario in 1941. But the 1962 crash rattled the American confidence, taking more lives than any previous single-plane incident. The Civil Aeronautics Board quickly began an investigation of the crash, they found the flight recorder on March 9th and held public hearings just days later, from March 20th to March 23rd. In July 1962, the CAB issued warnings about the Boeing 707 rudder mechanism. The investigators released a report in January 1963 identifying faulty wiring in the autopilot system as the accident's most likely cause. Several notable people passed away on Flight 1, including a millionaire realtor and an Olympic sailing gold medalist. W. Alton Jones, a personal friend of the former President Eisenhower, was traveling to California to join Ike on a fishing trip. Jones was found carrying a money clip with a $10,000 bill and $55,690 worth of cash. That amount would be worth almost $500,000 today. The Flight 1 tragedy unfolded on the day of Colonel John Glenn's parade in New York City. Glenn had recently become the first American to orbit the Earth. He completed three orbits during the Mercury Atlas 6 mission, the flight of Friendship 7. Upon his return, Glenn quickly became a national hero. He met President John F. Kennedy on February 23, 1962, and was awarded the NASA Distinguished Service Medal. John Herschel Glenn Jr. was born on July 18, 1921, to a middle-class Ohio family. His father, John Sr., was a plumber and a veteran of World War I's Western Front. His mother, Clara Teresa Glenn, was a teacher. Glenn became obsessed with flight as a boy. He built model airplanes and eventually earned a private pilot license at age 20. He enrolled in Muskingum College as a chemistry student, but in 1942 Glenn quit to enlist in the Air Corps of the U.S. Army. When the Army failed to call Glenn to duty, he enlisted as a U.S. Navy aviation cadet. He attended pre-flight training at the University of Iowa and eventually enrolled in advanced training at Naval Air Station Corpus Christi in Texas. While in Texas, Glenn transferred to the U.S. Marine Corps. He completed his training in March 1943, and the Marines commissioned him as a second lieutenant. Glenn was eventually stationed at Camp Kearney in California, with a squadron flying transport planes. He requested a transfer to the fighter squadron and was shipped to Hawaii in January 1944. His outfit had moved to Midway Atoll by February, then to the Marshall Islands that June. He flew 57 combat missions in World War II's Pacific Theater and received multiple awards for his service. Glenn earned a promotion to captain and flew various missions after the war. 
He served in northern China during Operation Beleaguer and in the Korean War. In 1954, Glenn reported to the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School. He would eventually fly the first supersonic transcontinental flight aboard an F-8U Crusader from Los Alamitos, California to New York City in just 3 hours, 23 minutes, and 8.3 seconds. The cross-country flight landed Glenn in the New York Times. The Soviet Union launched Sputnik 1 on October 4, 1957. The satellite launch created a wave of anxiety in the United States, known to history as the Sputnik Crisis. The success of the Soviet space program challenged America's notions of exceptionalism. President Eisenhower rushed to respond, and the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, was formed on October 1, 1958. One of its primary initiatives centered around human spaceflight. On December 17, 1958, NASA announced Project Mercury, the program's goal, to put a man into Earth orbit. John Glenn had flown for over 9,000 hours by the time NASA began recruiting its first astronauts. NASA's selection criteria were simple. Candidates needed to be college-educated, younger than 40, and shorter than 5 feet 11 inches. Glenn's lack of a college science degree should have disqualified him, but he checked the most important box, height. Project Mercury's spacecraft was small. Finding pilots with enough experience who could fit inside the cockpit was a challenge. Glenn emerged from a series of tests as part of NASA's first group of astronauts, announced at a press conference on April 9, 1959. As Tom Wolfe wrote in the novel The Right Stuff, Glenn had the hottest record as a pilot, was the most quotable, the most photogenic, and the lone marine. Just weeks later, the astronauts would watch as the SM-65D Atlas rocket exploded after takeoff. I'm glad they got that out of the way, said Alan Shepard. Glenn served as a backup pilot for the Mercury Redstone 3 and Mercury Redstone 4 flights, providing input on the layout and functioning of the spacecraft controls. After Mercury Atlas V successfully carried Enos the chimpanzee into space, America wondered who would become the country's first astronaut to make the trip. Glenn was chosen for Mercury Atlas VI. He flew 70 simulated missions and spent months preparing for the orbital flight. Glenn and his backup, M. Scott Carpenter, completed their training in January 1962. MA-6 was postponed several times in early 1962. The initial launch date of January 16th was pushed back due to problems with the rocket fuel tanks. The next launch was canceled at the last minute due to unfavorable weather, as Glenn sat on the launch pad and reporters looked on in anticipation. Another early February launch was pushed back to repair a fuel leak. Friendship 7 lifted off on February 20th, 1962 at 10.47 a.m. when engineer T.J. O'Malley pressed the launch button and said, the good Lord ride all the way. By 10.52 a.m., Friendship 7 reached its orbit, and Glenn described a beautiful sight looking eastward across the Atlantic. Glenn would complete three orbital trips. During the first, he witnessed a visual phenomenon with sparks of light he described as fireflies. As he traveled around the night side of the Earth, Glenn noticed the city of Perth in Western Australia, whose residents had left on their lights to guide his trip. A few issues persisted throughout the flight, with the spacecraft landing bag the autopilot system, and Glenn's spacesuit temperature. By his third orbit, Glenn joked that the mission should qualify him for his regular flight pay. The flight of Friendship 7 lasted around 4 hours and 55 minutes. The spacecraft splashed down in the North Atlantic at about 3.47 p.m. Glenn was rescued by the USS NOAA just minutes later. Both he and Friendship 7 were intact. NASA announced the fourth orbit of Friendship 7 on April 19, 1962, a world tour including more than 20 stops. 
The spacecraft is currently displayed at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. John Glenn was celebrated as an American hero. I know I've spent a lot of time on the events of March 1st, 1962, the backdrop to Flight 1. In doing so, I hope I've established the historical context influencing Mad Men's story. It's now two years after the events of the pilot. Gone are the safety and predictability of 1960. Ideas about the world are being redefined. The stories of John Glenn and American Airlines Flight 1 set the stage for the decade's journey into a brave new world. Despite the increasing tensions of the Cold War, the 1950s was a decade of relative peace and prosperity in America. It's often noted for cultural dogmatism. But 1960's presidential election, portrayed in episode 1.12, Nixon versus Kennedy, sparked a decade of cultural upheaval. Americans watched in awe as their countrymen ventured into space. They were frightened by social unrest, tragedies, and war. The world was expanding into the unseen and unknown. A tacit disquietude loomed over a world that had just two years earlier seemed so self-assured. The second episode of Season 2, Flight 1, was written by Lisa Albert. Albert had worked with Mad Men throughout Season 1. Like her previous episodes, New Amsterdam and Nixon vs. Kennedy, Flight 1 centers around Pete Campbell. Director Andrew Bernstein returns to the show, having directed Episode 1.6, Babylon. But Flight 1 stands out to me for several impressive performances, from John Hamm, Vincent Carthizer, and Elizabeth Moss. It's an episode about personal tragedy and business, one that portrays emotional upheaval amidst the question, what should I do? The episode opens at Paul Kinsey's Montclair apartment, about 20 miles outside of Manhattan. Pete and Trudy arrive at Paul's party, where they find Harry with his wife, Jennifer. Harry has obviously apologized for his infidelity, and Jennifer is now pregnant. Trudy puts on a fake smile, hiding her own frustrations about having a child. Trudy chats with Peggy as Pete looks on uncomfortably. It's so nice to see a familiar face, she says. Kenny, meanwhile, makes several advances on a young girl who claims she's had too much to drink. Salvatore and his new wife Kitty eavesdrop, laughing at Ken's unsubtle attempts to get laid. The girl runs away and Ken looks around the party, noticing a typewriter that Paul stole from the office. Paul introduces Joan to his girlfriend, Sheila White. Sheila is an African-American woman who works as a grocery store cashier. They make casual conversation before Paul leaves for a moment. Joan smiles and talks about her past relationship with Paul. Well, it's good to see you and Paul together. I have to say, when Paul and I were together, the last thing I would have taken him for was open-minded. I love your purse. Oh, thanks. I just got it. Many Mad Men fans were upset when the show revealed Joan's subtle racism. Even Christina Hendricks was alarmed when she read the script. But Matthew Weiner justifies this as part of the period. This was the early 60s, and many people still flaunted their racism openly. But I think this goes beyond racism for Joan, who uses her past relationship with Paul to emasculate him. We should understand that Joan's cruelty is directed more at Paul than at Sheila. Mad Men has hinted at their failed relationship, and Joan makes Sheila uncomfortable to get back at Paul. It's easy to overlook that Joan is included in the sexual harassment depicted throughout Mad Men. She adopts an authoritative demeanor in response to this, with both men and women. Joan has a very stratified view of status and relationships, and she often uses her status to get what she wants. Her conversation with Sheila is just another example. This is how Mad Men portrays characters. The same assertiveness we admire in Joan also drives her to petty cruelty. 
Throughout the party, Peggy flirts with a young man named Eugene. Matthew Weiner stated that he wanted to rekindle some of Peggy's innocence after season one's finale. Despite her pregnancy, she's still a young girl. She still wants to have fun and meet boys. As the party winds down, Peggy and Eugene make out in the hallway. Come home with me, he says. Peggy laughs and pulls away. Why should I? Because I like you and we're having a good time. And I'm a good kisser. And you know you want to. <laughs> Eugene. Mm. I'm in the persuasion business. And frankly, I'm disappointed by your presentation. She takes her coat from the floor and leaves. Eugene stands in the hallway rejected, stunned. He grabs his own jacket and walks away. It's notable that Peggy now asserts herself around men, even outside the office. Peggy's confidence feels far more natural here than in her date with Carl in episode 1.11, Indian Summer. Some have speculated that Peggy is still hesitant about sex after her pregnancy, but I think her refusal shows a genuine lack of attraction. It also hints at Peggy's priorities. She still has to wake up and get to work the following morning. Peggy takes her job seriously. She's making the personal sacrifices required to succeed in advertising. An overhead shot shows Peggy sprawled out in bed the following morning, her red dress fluffed out atop white and gold sheets. Light pours into her room, and her phone rings on the floor. This is Lisa Alpert's favorite shot from season two. The next scene offers Mad Men's first street-level view of the Sterling Cooper building lobby. We quickly cut to Don and Roger in the elevator, where Roger complains about the traffic from John Glenn's parade. It's incredible what passes for heroism these days. I'd like ticker tape for pulling out of my driveway and going around the block three times. Not like people were shooting at him. The acting here is subtle, but I think Roger's impatience in this scene is related to his effort to quit smoking. He seems tense and agitated. Don says that Glenn is a hero. It's like he just took off his letterman jacket. They enter the office and find the entire staff circled around Hildy's desk. Roger's annoyance boils over. Can I just fire everyone? He suggests. Don smiles as they approach the group. Excuse me. This is a place of business. Colonel Glenn will be on Earth for the rest of his life. Plane went down. American Airlines flight one to Los Angeles. Crashed in Jamaica Bay. There could be a hundred people on there. Just fell out of the sky. Several employees are horrified as the radio reports continue. Peggy arrives carrying a vacuum cleaner. She notices the group and stops for a moment before continuing to her office. Pull all Mohawk ROP, Don tells Harry. We don't want a Mohawk ad next to a picture of a floating engine. For those of you unversed in esoteric advertising jargon, ROP, or run of press, are the ads printed directly on the pages of a newspaper or magazine. While others are shocked by the Flight 1 tragedy, Don quickly identifies an advertising crisis for Mohawk Airlines. Be ready to hit the ground running with new work, Don instructs. Paul turns the words into a joke. Freddie chimes in, then Pete. Some of the passengers were on their way to a golf tournament, Pete says. When the plane hit, the bay turned plaid. Roger smirks as he walks away. Note the irony in Roger's joke. John Glenn would not be on Earth for the rest of his life. He would, of course, return to space in 1998 aboard the space shuttle. Roger enters Burt Cooper's office where he finds Cooper eating a lunch of cottage cheese with ketchup. Weiner claims this was inspired by stories about Richard Nixon. Planes are meant for dropping bombs on Moscow, not French cuisine, Roger says. Duck enters and presents an opportunity. American Airlines will be looking for a new ad agency, he says. 
Duck promises to set up a meeting with Shell Keneally, his inside man at American. He recommends Sterling Cooper drop its relationship with Mohawk Airlines to pursue the more prominent client. Alone in his office, Pete takes a phone call from his brother Bud. When he hangs up, he steps out and stands next to Hildy, looking around aimlessly. He walks over to Don's office. My father was on that plane, Pete reveals. He shrugs and says he doesn't know what to do. Don pours him a drink and tells him to go home. That's what people do, Don says. Is that what you would do? Pete asks. After the end of season one, Pete and Don's relationship felt unresolved. But Flight One takes steps to ease their tension, portraying a more human side of both characters. Don and Pete are not friendly. But as Don says, supportiveness is the accepted response to a death in someone's family. Flight One makes several mentions of what people are supposed to do. In this scene, Don expresses sympathy and tells Pete to go home to his family. Pete portrays a familiar uncertainty about how to handle a death in the family. He's still a young man, less than 30 years old, and his father's death is a shock. Parenthood is a recurring theme in Flight One, portrayed most prominently through the death of Pete's father. But I think this scene hints at Pete's developing respect for Don. He seeks Don's advice. There's a bit of a fatherly relationship in Don and Pete's interactions, and Don pats Pete on the shoulder as he leaves. This is perhaps the closest they've been throughout Mad Men's series. The jokes continue throughout the office as Pete heads home. Don joins the ongoing discussion in Burke Cooper's office. He disapproves of dropping Mohawk Airlines to pursue American. We have a good client who pays their bills on time, Don says. But Duck presses, insisting a shot at a national airline is worth the risk. He suggests Don's ego is clouding his judgment. I know you thought some guy at American would see a Mohawk ad and say, get me that guy, but that's not how it worked out. Mad Men's writers heavily debated whether Don would mention Pete's father to win this argument. I think the choice they made better fits Don's character. Threads of his earlier conversation run through the meeting when Don says, you'll have to forgive me for not looking at a bunch of bodies in Jamaica Bay and seeing the opportunity. We should note that dropping a sure thing for another opportunity is a reality of advertising. Sterling Cooper can't work on a creative pitch for American Airlines while handling business for a competitor. Duck acts reasonably in pursuing this opportunity. But Don once again reveals his ethical code, expressing the idea of how things should be. A loyal client, to Don, should be rewarded with loyalty. Throughout Season 2, Don's interactions with Duck will expose his naive understanding of advertising. Despite his deep personal conflicts, Don seems principled in how he conducts business. Offering a quality product, in this case innovative creative work, is how Don wants to attract clients. Don finds Duck's salesmanship distasteful. He wants to win business honestly. And though season two will portray his success, Don's conflicts with Duck will help him learn some hard truths about business. Pete visits his family's Upper East Side apartment that evening. We first saw this apartment in New Amsterdam. The setting is ornate, expansive. Pete's sister-in-law, Judy Campbell, expresses her sympathy. He was such a great man, she says. His mother, Dorothy, seems in chalk. She looks around the room and finds a pink elephant, literally the elephant in the room. Take it, she tells Trudy. Bud Campbell enters and pulls Pete aside. Bud is played by actor Rich Hutchman and appears in six episodes of the Mad Men series. Episode 1.4, New Amsterdam, mentions him during Pete's argument with his father when Pete brings up an accident where Bud hit a girl riding a bicycle. Bud whispers that their father was insolvent after spending his money on oysters, clubs, and travel. He laments that their mother, once a wealthy lady, is now broke. The Campbell boys resolve not to tell her. 
That same evening, Peggy visits her mother and sister in Bay Ridge, returning the vacuum cleaner she brought to the office. A middle-class residential neighborhood in southwest Brooklyn, Bay Ridge held a prominent Norwegian community throughout the 1960s. Mad Men portrays the Bay Ridge setting beautifully, the set cluttered with knickknacks and props. The photography remains close to the actors. Objects often intrude into the frame. The end result is a space that feels small, humble, and lived in. Despite her married name, however, Peggy's mother, Catherine Olson, is Irish Catholic. People ask about you at church, she tells Peggy, who insists she's busy. When her mother walks away, Anita shames her. She's not going to be here forever. Would it kill you to go? I don't want to. And I'm capable of making my own decisions. Really? The state of New York didn't think so. The doctors didn't think so. When her mother returns, Peggy gets up to leave. Aren't you going to say goodnight, her sister asks. Peggy gazes through a partially open door, first at an infant boy in a crib. Her eyes move to two older boys lying in bed, one asleep. The other boy weighs at her. Hi, Aunt Peggy, he says. She shuts the door and walks defiantly down the hallway. In Ossining, the Drapers host Francine and Carlton for a game of cards. Carlton tells Don about their young babysitter. I'm enjoying the story so far, but I have a feeling it's not going to end well, Don says. Sally brings Don a drink, and Carlton, impressed, asks for a Manhattan. She runs off as Don instructs her not to model the cherry. Mad Men conveys several ideas in the subtext of this scene. Carlton's noticeably packed on a few pounds, and though he's patched up his relationship with Francine, he lusts after a teenage babysitter. Don seems uncomfortable throughout the conversation. He doesn't like Carlton, and finds the sexualization of a young girl perverse. This is perhaps the first time Mad Men shows Don's relationship with his daughter Sally. He treats Sally as an adult, telling her how to make drinks. And while it seems charming, Carlton's comments darken the tone of Don and Sally's interaction. Don's not sexualizing her, but he's familiarizing Sally with grown-up behaviors like alcohol. She's just eight years old in this scene, and we sense that Sally is being exposed to the adult world too quickly. Contrast this with Betty, who seems sheltered and childlike, even as an adult. The adults play pinochle in the Draper's living room while Sally and Bobby sit on the stairs eavesdropping. Bobby ventures down to sneak some M&Ms, but Betty scolds him. He's a little liar, she says. She tells a story about Bobby tracing a drawing for school. Don and Carlton don't think it's a big deal, but Betty is upset, recognizing her husband's dishonesty in her son. When their neighbors leave for the evening, Betty and Don clean up in the kitchen. She says that Carlton seems happy, but Don disagrees. Betty grows angry. He should be happy and grateful after all he put Francine through, she insists. Betty's indirectly talking about her own marriage here, but Don refuses to confront the issue. Don watches through the kitchen window as Betty takes out the garbage and stands outside, her hands shaking as she lights a cigarette. Episode 2.1, for those who think young, portrayed Don's unhappiness in striving to be more of a family man. Flight 1 reveals that Don and Betty haven't truly reconciled. We can speculate that Don never openly admitted his infidelity, that Betty is still heartbroken by his dishonesty. In Flight 1, Don continues to avoid this conflict rather than resolving it. Unvoiced feelings seem to stifle both Don and Betty. Mad Men has lifted the pretense of Valentine's Day and the Draper's happy marriage. Pete sits in bed with Trudy and recalls his last conversation with his father. Arguing about facts, it's what we do, Pete laments. He seems to regret the disagreement that characterized their relationship. Trudy reassures him, neither of you knew it was the last time. 
The next day opens at Sterling Cooper, where Paul finds his secretary chatting with Joan. Paul ignores her, asks for some copies, and walks away. But Joan follows. Mr. Kinsey, is something wrong? I'm avoiding you. Or haven't you noticed that after three days? Are you worried about the typewriter? I'm not going to tell anyone. Although you were so brazen, you don't deserve clemency. Paul gets upset and accuses Joan of sabotaging his relationship with Sheila. He accuses her of racism while she calls out his pretentiousness. Oh my God, I knew you were a lot of things. I'm not a phony. Joan suggests that Paul is only dating Sheila to seem progressive. Paul is appalled by her insensitivity. He accuses her of jealousy, which Joan denies, laughing as she continues to insult him. What a relief. You're just jealous. Because you're the one who got away. You, out there in your poor little rich boy apartment in Newark or wherever, walking around with your pipe and your beard, falling in love with that girl just to show how interesting you are. We again see Joan act cold, even vindictive. Her comments at the party are still fresh in mind. Season 1 dropped a few hints about her relationship with Paul, but these references always seemed casual. Flight 1 suggests their relationship ended on bad terms. A quick insert shows an unseen man take Joan's purse from her office locker. Roger walks into Don's office that afternoon and tells him to sever their business with Mohawk Airlines. What kind of company are we going to be, Don demands. Roger replies with his typical wit, the kind where everyone has a summer house. Duck walks into Pete's office and expresses his condolences. He says that Sterling Cooper is like a family, but his sincerity quickly turns to exploitation when he asks Pete to meet with American Airlines. Pete is unsettled so shortly after his father's death. I don't think I've even cried yet, he admits. Duck reassures him and leaves graciously. Pete stands outside his office, noticing Peggy before he walks past Lois and into Don's office. Don, still upset over the Mohawk account, shouts, It's not a good time. When she leaves for the day, Joan notices a group of girls laughing outside Peggy's office. She finds a posted photocopy of her driver's license, her birth date of February 24, 1931, circled in pen. That's right, Joan is 31 years old at the time of this episode. There's still hope for us all. Joan takes the copy, crumples it up, and throws it in the wastebasket. Did you see who did this? She asks Peggy. Peggy smiles and shakes her head in denial. I never would have guessed you were in your 30s. People should not bring their personal problems into the office. I agree. Is it so hard to just leave everything at the door and just do your job? I look forward to it. They can't stand it. They'll drag you into the garbage out there. They just want you to be as miserable as they are. I say let them have it. Joan's comments are, of course, ironic, given how her encouragement drove Peggy to sleep with Pete and endure an unplanned pregnancy. Both Joan and Peggy deal with sexism for diametrically opposite reasons. Joan embraces her sexuality to unsettle other men. Peggy, meanwhile, tries to fit in by rejecting her femininity. The shared experience of dealing with sexism helps develop Joan and Peggy's relationship beyond season one. Doug Phillips sits with Shell Keneally and American Airlines that evening. We're just sticking our toe in the water, Shell says, casting doubt over the idea of moving his business to Sterling Cooper. Pete walks in and Duck introduces him. Sterling Cooper understands the situation you're in, Pete says. He reveals that his father died on flight one. Shell is alarmed, but Duck seems satisfied. Don sits in a darkly lit Japanese restaurant with Henry Wofford from Mohawk Airlines. 
It wasn't my decision, he says. Henry recalls Don's pitch about their companies growing together. I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but you fooled me. He gets up, disappointed, and leaves Don to sit alone. A shot pans around Don's back, evoking the opening scene from Mad Men's pilot. A beautiful Asian woman approaches him in slow motion as Kiyu Sakamoto's Sukiyaki plays in the background. The woman's entrance recalls the shot of Betty at the Savoy in episode 2.1, for those who think young. The scene's backing song has a poignant connection to Flight 1. Sakamoto passed away on August 12, 1985, aboard Japan Airlines Flight 123. The waitress approaches and makes several passes at dawn, but he politely declines. Excuse me? You've been sitting alone a long time. Can I get you a menu? I don't think so. I have to drop this off, but I can swing back around on my way out. Not tonight. Peggy attends a Catholic Mass with her family the following Sunday. Prayers are read in Latin. This was still months before the Second Vatican Council approved the Sacrosanctum Concilium, or Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy, which allowed Mass to be read in English. Peggy sits in a pew as her mother and sister get up to take communion. As a Catholic who had not confessed, she would not participate. Anita hands Peggy a baby boy and walks to the front of the church. The boy's cries fill the church as Peggy holds him, noticeably uncomfortable. The episode ends with the song Temptation is Hard to Fight by George McGregor and the Bronzettes. Flight One is dedicated to actor Christopher Allport. Cast during season one, Allport portrayed Pete's father, Andrew Campbell, in what was meant to be a recurring role on Mad Men. He passed away on January 25, 2008, in an avalanche near Mountain High Ski Resort in Southern California. We've already discussed several of the episode's central ideas. Joan and Paul's tit-for-tat fight, the dropping of Mohawk Airlines to pursue American, and the death of Pete's father. This episode fleshes out some of what we saw in the season premiere, especially in Don and Betty's relationship. Don and Duck's conflict continues through the airline story. Duck searches for allies and senses he can manipulate Pete. Flight One even hints at Roger's attempts to quit smoking. But what Flight One portrays so adroitly is the impact of change and how each character responds to advice about what they should do. For Peggy, this comes from several characters. Her mother and sister pressure her to go to Mass, where she's visibly out of place, the church rules demanding a confession she's not prepared to make. Joan, meanwhile, suggests people should leave their personal problems at home, and Peggy readily agrees. Even Eugene tells her to come home with him. In advance, she rejects without much thought. In Flight 1, we begin to understand Peggy with more subtlety. She's at times confident, around men, and at work. She still retains some of the innocence of youth, but guilt about giving away her baby seems to intrude on her self-assuredness. Pete struggles with his father's death and the intrusion of Sterling Cooper's business. He seems unsure of how to feel as several characters, Don, Duck, and Trudy, give advice. Pete often battled with his father, who never accepted his profession and belittled his accomplishments. Amidst his father's death, Pete seems to search for a mentor. He looks up to Don, even asking him, is that what you would do? Pete often portrays life's common indecision, and he looks to a more authoritative voice for direction. But like Peggy, Pete perhaps misplaces his trust in Don's voice. Asking the question, what would Don do, likely pushes Pete to walk into the episode's closing meeting with American Airlines. Flight One repeatedly inserts commentary on parenthood. Pete copes after his father's death, while Peggy is torn by guilt over her abandoned child and her mother. Don and Sally's relationship is shown for perhaps the first time in the series. 
Betty talks about her own parents. I think parents represent our emotional compass. Much of how we respond to change or adversity is owed to our parents. They're the voice we fall back on to guide us in moments of indecision. But in Flight 1, Mad Men suggest that our parents' guidance doesn't always lead us to what's best for ourselves. Don has conflicts of his own after doing what he thinks is the right thing. The idea of morality influences many of Don's actions in Flight 1. He expresses loyalty to Mohawk Airlines and struggles to drop their business. He tries to reconcile with Betty and to spend time with his daughter Sally. But while Don's ideas about advertising are often brilliant, his personal life is marked by confusion. In episode 1.10, Long Weekend, we compared Don to Nixon and discussed his guarded personality. Flight 1 shows Don avoiding any sincere or genuine remorse. He and Betty haven't truly reconciled. Hints of temptation haunt him at the episode's end. Flight 1 spends considerable time on both Peggy's pregnancy and Don's marriage. These narrative arcs are critical to appreciating Season 2, and our next episode, The Benefactor, will continue to explore them. Harry will take a controversial idea to Peggy's client, Belle Jolie. Don will ask Betty to help smooth over a crisis at work. And Mad Men will introduce everyone's favorite, miniature, shock comic, Jimmy Barrett. Hi everyone, welcome to Season 2. I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to the podcast so you know as soon as new episodes arrive. If you found me on YouTube, please like and comment on my videos. If you're listening on your favorite podcast platform, you can leave me a rating if you're enjoying the content. You can contact me at madmendeconstructedpodcast at gmail.com or on social media at madmendeconstructed. As always, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next episode.